Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. As Aaron said, my name is Nate. I'm one of the staff pastors here at Restoration Road Church, and it is my honor to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, We have been making our way through the book of Hebrews, and in our series through Hebrews, we have seen recently uh, that salvation is not attained through works of the law under the old covenants. For as in uh, the Hebrews author wrote in chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is the priest, the high priest who doesn't need to make atonement for his own sin. But as we saw in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tabernacle or tent that the Lord set up, not man. We continue to read in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, that because Jesus came, we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, his, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. God's people have now have restored relationship with God through Christ and have direct access to him. So the the writer of Hebrews then encourages the church and says, so let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith. And we come to chapter 11. We ask the question, well, what is faith? What is faith? Well, he answers that for us at the very beginning of chapter 11 in verse one, where he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, of things not seen. As I've been studying this passage of, of, of text from verses 8 to verse 22 in chapter 11 this week, I just imagine the writer of Hebrews just drawn into worship as he laid out God's perfect plan of salvation through his writing. I can imagine him declare something along the lines of these old ways, these traditions, as he's looking at these, they're absolutely relevant and they are glorious when we see how they illuminate and magnify Christ. See, so many look to these old systems to be a means for them to have right relationship with God. And what the author of Hebrews says is, no, 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 no. We're missing the picture here. The picture is Jesus in every single one of these tenets of the Jewish faith. It is to point our attention and our affections toward Christ. The whole system, the entire biblical narrative is leading to one massive culmination, the life and work of Jesus Christ. So now we come to a list of examples that's given to us in chapter 11. What it looks like to put this faith into practice Faith is often misunderstood in our modern context, almost as if, it's, as if it were a formula for getting what you most want. Theologian Michael Kruger writes about faith and says, quote, as far as our culture is concerned, faith is a feeling, a positive outlook on life. Faith is great. Nobody has problems with faith. Faith becomes just something you conjure up within yourself. It is something to add to the list of things we need to do in order to be successful. 
Not only is faith misunderstood in our context and in our culture, it is also misplaced. Faith is not strong self-determination or positive thinking, nor is faith means to manipulate God. Faith is a gift from God. Consider the cry of the 16th century Protestant reformers. Sola fide, that was one of their main mantras, by faith alone. It's no wonder that faith took a leading role in this formative season of the church. Faith is significant, but we often misunderstand faith. The significance is not only confined to the reformation of the church or church history. The significance of faith is all throughout Scripture. The New Testament uses the word, uh, the Greek word pistis for faith, 243 times in the New Testament. The root word, which would include faith, faithfulness, belief, and also some forms of the negative uh, form of the word, like unfaithfulness or unbelief or ye of little faith, it uses that word 602 times in the New Testament. This is a prominent thing. Faith, as I said, translated in English as faith 243 times. Of that in the New Testament, 41 times in the book of Hebrews. Of the 41 times in the book of Hebrews, 19, almost half in our chapter 11. Scripture has a few things to say about faith. Jesus had a lot to say about faith. The writer of Hebrews has a lot to say about faith because it's a major topic, a major theme within the entirety of the New Testament. We see it. But as the author of Hebrews points out, it is not only a major theme, only relegated to the New Testament, it is a major theme in the Old Testament as well. Although it may not be written as clearly, the existence of faith is just as prevalent in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Now, when we consider faith, there is an active and passive component to faith. Passive in that it is a work of God. It is a gift given to us. An active component in that it produces action in the person to whom it has been given. Action flows from faith. Genuine faith is demonstrated or shown through obedient action. This is the argument that we see in James chapter 2. He says, faith that is alive is faith that is demonstrated through obedience, which in itself is caused by love, the love of Christ within the believer and the believer's love for Christ that flows out to every interaction in the world. Let me give an example of this tension of the active and passive. An example is when I exercise physically. I have a responsibility in that action, right? I have to get out of bed in time that I have time to make my way down to the garage and I have to get on the elliptical and I have to have the motivation to keep moving. But the reality is I did not make my bones or my muscles. In fact, I didn't make my heart or my lungs and and, and I didn't make oxygen. So I need all of these things. These things give me the ability to, to get on the elliptical and to do the exercise that I need to do. There is a passive, this is a gift, life, everything, Paul says in in, in Acts chapter 17, life, breath, everything is given to us by God. So there is a recognition that from this gift comes a responsibility. Faith has been given as a gift. 
And it's, it is vital that we understand that faith is a gift of God, not a merit we earn. We get really messed up if we think that it's a merit we earn. Just as life is a gift, it's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we are entitled to. Faith comes from God alone, but we are called to exercise or strengthen our faith. And so the question is, how? How do we do that? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us some examples. By walking through Israel's history, creation to the flood, as Pastor Mike looked at last week, the patriarchs that we'll look at this week, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, just as the author of Hebrews has highlighted the ceremonies and the customs of Israel and shows how Christ is better, he also demonstrates how the heroes of Israel had faith in God's plan. And it was demonstrated through obedient action. They didn't even know how it was going to end. They just knew that God was trustworthy. And so they acted in confidence that God would fulfill every single promise in the steady assurance that God is good. So the central truth that I hope we hang on to in our few verses this morning is this, that Christians receive the gift of faith in Christ. That's an intake. It's something given to us, which is strengthened by obedience to Christ, which is our outflow. Because we've been given faith, we act in obedience to what God has commanded us. And we'll see examples of that in our text today. So if you have our Bibles, we will be in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, where we read this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We'll pause there. The first example here of the patriarchs that the author of Hebrews gives us is that of Abraham. And what we see is that by faith, Abraham left the familiar to embrace the foreign. He left his homeland to be a stranger and alien in a foreign land. Uh, the texts, if you are jotting down notes, if you want to study this in further detail, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17 will give you the context uh, of these accounts. But Abraham obeyed. He didn't even know where he was going. God just said, go. And in faith, which was confident trust in the wisdom of God, he packed up and left. Now, Make no mistake, this wasn't blind ignorance. Although Abraham didn't know where to go, he was confident that God did. His confidence was not in his ability to, to have the plan all mapped out in front of him. His confidence was in the God who called him to go was the God who, who had everything planned out. There was an assurance, a faith, a trust that if God is leading me here, God knows what he is doing and he is trustworthy. So how did Abraham strengthen his faith, obedience, and trust? He trusted in the word of God because he trusted the character of God. He was able to obey God's word because he trusted who God 
was. Now, there's an, an awkward phrasing in the middle of this of, of Isaac and Jacob being with him. What that means there is that not that they lived with Abraham at the same time, uh, but that they too followed in that same tradition of living as nomadic foreigners in a land that God had promised to them, but they had not yet seen, hoping in that future promise that God would one day firmly establish their descendants. So Abraham lived in a tent, as did Isaac, as did Jacob, holding on to the promise that God was going to establish them in this land. He looked forward to the future promise. The author of Hebrews says it was a city with foundations, not built by the world's best architects, much better than that a city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. Mark Strauss, theologian and author, writes this. He says, the main point of this text, quote, the main point is that one generation after another died with the certainty that God would fulfill his promise and keep his word. Obedience flowed from faith, a deep assurance that God is trustworthy, even though they did not see it. And I think that's why the, the, the author of Hebrews lists Isaac and Jacob here, because generations passed of holding on to this promise. Abraham was given this promise. He lived hoping that God would do what he said he would do, trusting that God would, complete, would fulfill his promises. And he died still believing God is trustworthy, even though he did not see it. Not just him, but Isaac as well, and Jacob. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's pick back up in verse 11, where he talks about Sarah. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Genesis chapter 18, 11 through 15, gives us an account of Sarah hearing that God was going to do this great work. And in the account of being told she would have a son, Sarah laughs. She laughs at God. Just hear me out here for a second. That's not a really good idea to laugh at God. I would not recommend that strategy. Sarah laughs at God. And I, I love the fact that the, the, the author of Hebrews says, look to her as an example of faith at work. Was she perfect? No. She laughed at God's design. Was Abraham perfect? No. In fact, actually, there's multiple accounts of Abraham lying to save his own skin. These were imperfect examples. And that's the point. The point of the Old Testament is to show us these are people who trusted in a perfect God, even though they themselves were very imperfect. Sarah laughs when she hears what God will do at first. But what do we read here? In spite of her initial doubt, she had faith in God's ability. Certainly not in her own ability. She looked, and the author of Hebrews points this out, she looked at her stage of life. <laughs> she goes, no, I'm beyond the stage that, that, that we, women normally have children. And then she looked at her husband, and she's like, he's on death's door. <laughs> Come on, really? 
She looked with her natural eyes and saw this is not her own perspective, said this is not possible. But she chose to trust in God's perspective. How did Sarah strengthen her faith? She considered him faithful who had promised. If God said it, even though it does not look possible to me from my perspective, when her perspective told her it was impossible, she chose to believe God's promise over and above her own knowledge. This is why we find her, one of the reasons why we find her in Hebrews chapter 11, as an example for us to look to. Abraham obeyed even when he had no direction. It didn't make sense for him to leave his stone house in a walled city to go live as a nomad in a tent in some land that God said he would give him. That didn't make any sense in the natural, but he trusted the Lord. Just as 90-year-old Sarah and almost 100-year-old Abraham didn't make sense to be new father and mother. (laughs) That didn't make sense in the natural. But she trusted. She considered him faithful who had promised. The faith of Abraham and Sarah to trust God's word is a testimony for us today of faith in action. And a reminder that Christians receive the gift of faith in Christ which is strengthened by obedience to Christ. We continue in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promised thing, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Faith, what we see in these few verses, faith does not require fruition. Faith does not require seeing the promise fulfilled because what what is a component of faith is looking beyond the fulfillment of the promise to, to the goodness and faithfulness of God, knowing his character, what come what may, God is who he says he is and he is worthy of our trust. These died without seeing the promise fulfilled. You feel the weight of that? What are you holding on to in your life? Going, God, if you would only move in this moment, if you would only do what you say you would do, what are you holding on to? Are you holding on to it so tightly that if you go to your grave with never seeing that promise fulfilled, never seeing that thing corrected, it's gonna shake you? The example that we see here is that that we need, to, we need to trust in the goodness of God. Faith is not rooted in what God does for us. Faith is rooted in who God is. And that allows us to face come what may. You read through church history, you see example after example after example of those who are able to endure terrible situations, incredible suffering. And you think, why? Why were they able to endure this? Were people just 
tougher than they are now? Like, are we just weaklings? No, they were able to endure the hardships that they faced because their trust was in the goodness and faithfulness of God. This example is put forward to us of those who looked forward to a better country, one that's not of this world. They were given a promise, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were given a promise that their people would be established in that promised land. But guess what? That wasn't what they were holding on to. The home that they longed for, they were aliens and strangers on this earth. They knew that there was an eternal component to God's promises to them, that a city was awaiting for them that was greater than one that was built by hands of men. There was an eternal component. And this authentic faith in God does not require the fulfillment of the promise because it is, it is assured that in, in the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. Pick back up in verse 17. We return to Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. I'm gonna pause there for a minute because most historians say there, there, there is no account at this point in, in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham was, was, was believing that God could raise, there was no account historically uh, of anyone being raised from the dead. Ever. It's kind of like Noah and the flood. There was never an account of rain coming down on the earth until the flood happened. <laughs> he considered that God was, was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That was verse 19. In verse 20, uh, actually, we're going we're gonna to pause there, 17 through 19. This is one of my favorite, this author of Hebrews is accounting one of my favorite Old Testament texts. I have many, but this is one of them. Genesis chapter 22. Uh, God calls Abraham. In fact, actually, let's just, let's just turn there and read it. Genesis chapter 22 is the account of the sacrifice of Isaac. So this is, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come, to you, come again to you. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. 
He said, behold, the the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Verse nine, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said to him, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is an amazing account of Abraham's obedience, but that is just the surface picture. I think what's really going on here is really to point our affection and our attention forward from this event. See, Abraham was called by God, as we just read. The son of promise whom he had been waiting for for years was to be sacrificed to the Lord. This was unthinkable to Abraham. I mean, other nations, gods would require child sacrifice, but not Abraham's God. Abraham's God did not delight in such things. It's told to us this was a test for Abraham. I think it was also picturing something yet to come. A test for Abraham, did he trust God's character this much? The answer, as we see and as we've read, was an unwavering yes. He trusted God completely. He trusted that if this deed were, if this act were to go through, God would raise him up. God would make means. So he took the wood. Notice there's some details that are odd. One, he he took the wood and he laid it on his son. Why tell us that? What's the significance of that? Okay, so Isaac carried the wood up the mountain. He took the wood. He laid it upon his son. Why tell us that Abraham carried the instrument of death, that the father carried the instrument of death? Why tell us that they were called to a land called Moriah, to the mountain of the Lord, the one that the Lord would choose? These are details that... At surface value, okay, why is this here? I think why this is here is to point our attention forward. But I would imagine that this would be a somber scene as Abraham's heavy heart took step by agonizing step up the mountain. His resolve was firm only because he trusted God. Even as he bound his only son whom he loved and laid him on the altar and he's, as he raised the knife to do the unthinkable I can imagine the relief that he felt when the angel called him to stop. But I don't think there was any doubt that God would fulfill his promise. 
Just as the author of Hebrews tells us, I mean, he knew God would just raise him from the dead if, that's, if, that's what, if this is what this action, God, because Abraham's trust and faith was in the goodness and faithfulness of God, not in how his circumstances turned out. But Abraham was called to stop. The deed was not necessary for this son, Isaac, was an insufficient sacrifice. But there would come a day when another son would carry wood upon his back from the mountain called Moriah. During Jesus' day, Mount Moriah was known as the Temple Mount. This son would be a sacrifice that will be sufficient to save all. Whereas Isaac was insufficient, this son would be a sufficient sacrifice. Thus, the death blow from the father would prove fatal, and Jesus, fully and truly human, fully and truly God, would become the necessary sacrifice to bring salvation and fulfill the promises of God, every single one. And Jesus would restore his people and establish them firmly within an eternal city as citizens of a better country. The author of Hebrews is saying, see this picture that we've seen. We, we've looked at this, this story of Abraham and Isaac, and we thought, oh, look at the faith of Abraham. And he's like, you're missing it. Even these guys were pictures of what God would do through Christ to point our affections and our attention to Jesus Only through Christ was this possible. This is what Jesus has done for you and for me. Jesus took the death blow, the one that you and I deserved. He took in our place for our sin. Do we feel the weight of that? What the author of Hebrews is commending to us is place your trust in him for he is worthy. In fact, he's the only one worthy of that trust. Faith in Christ, a gift from God. It brings a future blessing greater than, than the blessing of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so the question that I have for us today is have you responded to Christ? To this gift of salvation that he has given to us, have you responded in repentance and faith? If you have not, friends, I would plea with you, turn to Christ today. Place your trust in him and him alone, not in your works, not in your ability to be faithful, in his ability to be faithful, in his righteousness, in his work. Our final verses Verses 20 through 22 say this, By faith, 
Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. There's a future hope that Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they all looked to. Why could they bless their future descendants and give instructions for their future? Because they trusted in the faithfulness of God. Though they did not see it, they knew God was trustworthy. And if God had said it, it will be. And I'll remind us of verse 13. These died without receiving the promise, but they still had faith in God. As I conclude this morning, I want to read. Uh, I enjoy gospel hip-hop every once in a while, and uh, one of the songs by a band that I like to listen to called The Beautiful Eulogy, one titled Devotion. Uh, it's actually a spoken word, and I would like to read it. Uh, if you're familiar with it, I'll apologize right now because I'm not going to read it like they do on the, on the album. They're much, much more eloquent, but uh, I think it's very poignant for us. It is, it is, it is, uh, it's really good. I hope it, it, it moves you as it has moved me. Um, so this is... Uh, a spoken word titled Devotion by the Beautiful Eulogy. What is authentic faith? The cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it? A holy hoping for the best? Is this how you think of faith? Authentic faith is the confident assurance in events not yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not a crossing of the fingers and a hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It's a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and his promises. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. This is what faith is, my friends, positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it is believing God. Taking God at his word living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. It is an abiding assurance in God, in his promises, that animates you to persevere in your obedience to him. Do you wish to be more consistently obedient, steadily, perse steadily persevering Christian, a stronger Christian, a more courageous and outspoken Christian, then you need to strengthen your faith. Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You expand your understanding of the object of your faith, and faith itself will obediently follow. 
The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all of his promises. Is your faith weak? It is owing to the fact you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who he is progressively conforms to reality, your faith will become increasingly stronger. But how does that happen? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing word of God. Read of Jesus Christ. The same powerful word that long ago brought the universe to life is the same word that brings you to life and, and furnish you with, with a faith that is truly and authentically Christian. Do you have faith like this? I love that Jesus, in discussing the topic of faith, says, no, 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 it's not about how much faith you have. You can have faith the size of this little seed. It doesn't matter. It's not about your amount of faith. It's about who your faith is in. If your faith is in your ability to keep the law, you will fail. If your faith is in your ability to be a good person, you will be disappointed. Authentic Christian faith is rightly placed in the person of Jesus Christ, period. Period. That period is hard for us sometimes. So we like to go, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it, but it's Jesus and how much time I, X, Y, or Z. No. Authentic Christian faith is trust in Christ alone. Now you see why the reformers said, let's make this one of our mantra, mantras. <laughs> Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola fide, in faith alone. This is the blessing that has been passed down through us. By, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Praise God for that. We do not need to add anything to that work. It is done. It is finished. And we walk in that blessing. So are you trusting completely in Jesus? Every day, every situation you face every sorrow. Are you trusting in him, come what may, suffering or success, sorrow or joy, sacrifice or blessing? Does your faith say Christ is all? And are your sights set on a kingdom where the designer is God? May you receive the blessing of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. May you strengthen this gift of faith through obedience to Christ, drawing near to him through his word, in prayer, fellowshipping with other believers, 
May you draw near to him and may Christ be glorified through our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we come to you and we are grateful for all that you have done for us. God's salvation, as we read, that was, that was pictured for us in the sacrifice of Isaac just to point our attention in these Old Testament examples again and again and again to point our attention to you, Jesus. We are so grateful that, God, you, you came. We are, we are thankful for the advent, the coming of Christ, and that you lived a perfect life and that you died in our place. And that through your life, death, and resurrection, you have offered us true life. God, I pray for my friends here, brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that, that we would strengthen our faith. That we would draw close to you. That we would trust you and you alone. Whether we see the fulfillment of what we're hoping for in this life or not, that we trust you because you are trustworthy. God, I pray that you would help us in those moments where we are tempted to doubt in your goodness. When we look around and we see the brokenness and the hurt and the suffering we're tempted to ask those questions. Why? God, in those moments when we ask those questions, please direct our attention to your goodness and your faithfulness. God, that we might agree. We don't know why these things are happening, but we do know that you are good, that you are sovereign, that there is nothing that happens outside of your control. and that we can trust you. Oh, help us to trust you. Help us to look to you in all things, Jesus, that we might live our lives to bring glory to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.